It's Sports Bazaar. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories, you would say, that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangers. Hang on. He's on another level. What are you doing? <laughs> a lot of our stories that start with someone <laughs> fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. Stories to ever occur. We'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many subplots <laughs> in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports bizarre. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's Titus O'Reilly. And Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest edition of Sports Bazaar with my good self, Mick Malloy. And as always, as I often say, doing all the heavy lifting, Titus O'Reilly. I'm all ears. What do you got for us this week? You with resignation. No. (laughs) Well, I never know where you're going. I've given up trying to guess. Some weeks it's the Romanian Football League. Some weeks it's ping pong. Some weeks it's an ice skater bashing someone in the knee. I've given up trying to work out. What you're doing. Well, this one we're going to one of your favourite sports, Formula One. I love it. You love it. So it is one of the last great primal things you're allowed to do, to see it live. Have you been live? Oh, it's amazing. Everyone talks about the speed. You know what it got me? The sound. The sound. The very first time I went there, I went, what the hell? Yeah. Is this? We're in Melbourne where there is a Grand Prix. Melbourne's like got four or five million people. It's not a tiny city. Yeah. You can be the other side of the city, you can hear it. You and it's a street it circuit, so yeah. it's uh, quite unique. Do you remember when they took the sound off them? Oh, they lowered it, yeah. You, know, they lowered, right. lowered, you couldn't hear them coming. They were like electric <laughs> cars. I was standing in a hospitality tent and I could actually hear the inane conversation. I said, <laughs> can you turn the cars up, please? I'm having to talk to the housewives of Melbourne. That's the only reason you go for the noise. No, I mean, the it's noise, so good. It's just sensory overload. Colour, yeah. speed, movement, sound. It's yeah. brilliant. It's absolutely amazing. But we're going to go even back further where sort of the 60s, 70s, 80s are here. Right. And Formula 1 at this time, this was its peak. It was the glamour. Yeah. It was dangerous. It had everything going for it. It was dangerous all right. Oh, very. We'll get into how dangerous because it was sure. really amazing. And the guy we're going to talk about is... Someone who, if you have, not a Formula One fan, but for Formula One fans, he is an absolute icon. Yeah. His name is James Hunt. I'm aware of the name. Very well. And James Hunt was the first original sort of glamour boy of Playboy. F1 Playboy. You know, he was a member of the Playboy Club. Guys wanted to be him. Yeah. Girls wanted to do him, if I can say. Well, absolutely. I mean, cancelled in two minutes today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was a dapper dresser too, wasn't he? We'll get into his dressing because his dressing was hilarious. He was like a dandy. Yeah, he was. You think Justin Bieber sort of, but a racing car driver. A racing was car that driver. sort of level of, or sure. Harry Styles. He was like that level yeah. of pop stardom, but in gotcha. an F1 driver. So he was born in Surrey, England in 1947. And yep. he's born into a large family. His dad was a stockbroker but had fought in the war. And so he's sort of yeah. this very tight-knit family where he had two well sisters. Well-to-do. Sort of not massively well-to-do, but upper middle class, but not Because you find with the modern driver, the only way you can get into motor racing is to have extremely rich parents 
who, exactly. who will take time or those who hock their house yeah. so that you can... You can do it. It's not a cheap thing. And the same was with this, but his parents were not that wealthy enough to support him here. We'll get into how he gets into it because that okay. in itself is yeah. a story that probably couldn't happen today. But from when he was on, two sisters and three brothers, this is his mum describing him as a child. He was an odd little fellow, a rebel right from the moment he was born. He was such an individual and headstrong that they said it verged on him being anti-social and left the parents bewildered. His mum said he was the most difficult of our children to bring up and he was the only one who ever screamed all night as a baby for no apparent reason. (laughs) Sounds like a little Max Verstappen. Oh, he was just full on. And I think we're learning with all these stars to be a sporting star, you cannot be an easygoing individual. No, you're not happy. With your life. Yeah, it can't be done. You never go, oh, he's just really chill all the time. (laughs) No. So sometimes he used to get in a lot of trouble. So at four, he received a thrashing by his parents for thumping his baby brother Pete over the head with a shovel, (laughs) causing a wound that required several stitches. It's like an overreaction. Yeah. That was horseplay. That was just horseplay. In 1947, (laughs) I would have thought. On another occasion when they were a bit older, James chose to try and punch Pete during an argument, his brother. Pete saw the punch coming, he ducks, and so he ends up punching the wall. Now, he broke his knuckles doing this. His mum decides to send him to the hospital on a bus <laughs> to teach him a lesson. Yeah, <laughs> so, I know. Firm but fair. Firm but fair. Yeah. Imagine you did that today. You just send your kid who's broken his knuckles. All right, on the bus you go. See, that's, that would be bad parenting today. So, yeah, yeah, but I think he would have learned a lot from that. Yeah. He was very close to Pete, younger brother, who ends up becoming his manager later in life okay. because he becomes an accountant. And wingman. But what happens with Pete is when James is finally famous, they accidentally get, Pete's name wrong in a newspaper, the reporter did, and called him Norman, and that became his nickname for the rest of his life. (laughs) That's going to stick. That's going to stick. So he's this headstrong, full-on kid. The only thing where he sort of calm is he was interested in budgerigars. So he had an aviary and he used to do all of that. But birds in general or just the budgerigar? Birds in general and animals in general, but he loved breeding budgies. And later on in life when he finishes his F1 career, he breeds budgies. It's very hard to reconcile the two. It's it, This no, guy I, is I like... I can't see the link. In the thing line. about him is he fits several stereotypes. So he's sort of this eccentric <laughs> British guy, but he's also a playboy. He races cars and he also does budgerigars. Like I mean, if he had falcons with hoods on them yeah. and a big arm out, you go, what are you doing now? Or... Yeah, it's not the most testosterone-filled activity, <laughs> which I think is what he liked about it. He finally goes to school, which he hates. Funnily enough, absolutely hates it. He goes to Westerly, which is this primary school, and there he's quite good at cricket. He's a bowler. He's a good batter as well. He's also a wicketkeeper. He also plays soccer and he's the goalkeeper for the first 11. Is he good at all sports? He's naturally talented sportsman. Yeah. But he hated the team sports. Really? He only really liked individual sports, which okay. I think the team sports are interesting, but the individual sports, they're always the weirdest cats. You know <laughs> and, what I mean? And it also explains, too, why Formula One drivers don't like their teammates. Yeah. it's not to, a team I'm sport. I'm yet to see te- It's not a team sport. <laughs> so, uh, they're not in it for anyone other than themselves, I'm afraid. Despite him loving all sports, he mm. got very into tennis and squash. They were his two favourite sports yeah. during school. Um, he used to play all the time. At 10, he takes up smoking. 
And it says that no matter how <laughs> ten, <laughs> ten and they said that no matter how much his parents tried to make him stop, he just wouldn't desist. He just wouldn't do it. Pack a day was he? At, at he ended up smoking forty cigarettes a day for most of his life. Right? <laughs> he had an ashtray in his Formula One. <laughs> yeah, it was basically like so. This was this was, like, but he started at ten, wow. so it was a different time. That's old, unless you were born in Turkey. Yeah. <laughs> have you been to Turkey? Seriously, they are, they're all smoking and have moustaches from the age of six. Yeah. I'm telling you. <laughs> not making that up. I think when I travelled through South America, I think that was pretty similar too. It's a pretty casual. <laughs> uh, when he was 11, this is the first time he actually took any instruction from anyone, it said. Yes. He learnt from a farm worker and a family holiday they were on how to drive a tractor around. Is and he, this his first time behind First time with wheel? any. He's 11, first time on the wheel of anything. He found it hard to change the gears, though, because he just wasn't strong enough to depress the clutch, right? It would be like driving from McLaren. <laughs> anyway, go on. He couldn't do it. So um, eventually at this private farm, they let him get into a old uh, rover that they had on the farm okay. and let him potter around in that, and he absolutely loved it. So the first hint of motor racing. He's smitten straight away. He just loves driving. driving yeah. He loves driving. But he was so competitive in all the other sports. In tennis, he was 12 and he entered a tennis tournament for boys aged 16 and under. Yep. So he's playing against 16-year-olds. Um, he reaches the final and this was a great achievement. He's 12, the guy's playing 16, but he loses. And they said that he was inconsolable for hours afterwards, just cried full on. He just could not handle losing mm -hmm. whatsoever. His mum said, only victory would do for James. He always had to win. If he didn't, it was the greatest possible calamity as far as he was concerned. <laughs> and this, again, we find is true of yeah. most giants yeah. of their sport. Not an easygoing guy, right? He goes to Westerly Prep School, which is quite an upper-class school. He hates it so much. It's a boarding school and all boys. To get out of study sessions in the evening, he joins the school orchestra just to get out of them <laughs> and ends up becoming quite a great trumpeter to the point where he's doing <laughs> solos with the orchestra. So to, he's one of those guys so, that to avoid work, he does more work. He does more work. And, and once again, doesn't like being part of a group. The orchestra, I'll do a I'll, solo. I'm the thanks. soloist. Yeah. So he gets very good at that. He also, in the yearbook, he has taken up cross-country running and running becomes a big thing for him. That's how he blows off steam all okay. through his life. In the 1965 Wellington yearbook, the athletics coach wrote that that year's cross-country running team with one notable, if successful, exception, the team threw themselves wholeheartedly into the rigorous training program. <laughs> now, what he means by this, James refused to train with the team. <laughs> and the reason was, his coach said, is because it wasn't rigorous enough. Okay. So he was like, yeah, I'm yeah, not doing yeah. it. The other thing is, so he devises his own training regime for yeah. cross-country running and wins every race he's in. A part of it involved ducking into the bushes for a cigarette <laughs> while on these runs. Fantastic. So he's doing all that sort of stuff. Another time is, and this didn't get in the yearbook, but it's mentioned and it's still to this day apparently at this school a story that's told. At each dormitory there's a high balcony um, where people all hang out, people all throw things, people walking below as sure. a joke and all that sort of stuff. And according to the legends, one day the boys in the past started to see James Hunt land in their midst. He'd been dared to jump off. It's a 30-foot leap off the balcony and he did. Well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> Managed to survive, right? Now, the thing is, he's about sort of 12 years old. Mm. He's a very good-looking boy apparently and okay. as a man he becomes like a true 
pop star icon, like that level of good looks and women just love him. And he develops very early on sort of a red-blooded interest in women. Sure. Even at 12, there was an under-matron who was a teenager. She was at Westerly and he was infatuated with her and would chatter up all the time and she ended up writing him love letters. <laughs> is she hot? Because under-matron is the sexiest <laughs> title I've ever seen. Is he just... I don't the think the under relates campus. to how she looks. I think it's so he's a charming guy. They also had an Australian au pair at the Hunt household when his younger sister was born, and they become quite fond of each other. Okay. Although it doesn't say whether anything sort of happened, but his mum said, "I think he always had an eye for the girls, and the girls for him. There were always swarms of them around him. And if you go and type in James Hunt anywhere on the internet, yes. there's just scores of photos of him with." models and women and well like he was so he was attracted to them and they were attracted to him so he was very much Perfect. like that and from a very young age but he's away at this all boys school which he hates but by the time he's 15 he hooks up with a woman called Tomina Reek who is known as Ping by her friends at the age of 15 and they become an item for years so yep. they hook up so he's got a full-time girlfriend from when he's 15 basically when he turns 17, he passes his test for his driving sure. license. So he's 17. And he said he did a perfect drive in front of the inspector. The inspector was very impressed by him. Gave him the pink slip that said, you've passed your license. And he says, as soon as he handed it to him, I revved the car up and roared away like a <laughs> lunatic. <laughs> so, See you later, sucker. Yeah, his girlfriend Ping recalls this era of him having a car and them all having cars at 17 yeah. as madness, total and utter madness. She said... James was reckless. We all were. But somehow we got away with it and lived through it and didn't kill someone along the way. In those days, there were no breathalyzer tests. Everyone went to the pub, had a few drinks, and then hit the road. So people forget that that's what it was like. Just so we're clear, he hasn't driven. This is his first car. He hasn't. He's never driven before, driven. before except on the farm when he was this 11. Is incredible. So he's only just getting into a car for the first time. Yeah. His mum said of his driving at this time, he crashed everything we had. <laughs> he, <laughs> he rode off our minivan, rolling it across a field near Epsom. He was going too fast around a bend, caught the curb and flew off. It ended up at least 50 yards from the road in a bed of roses in a market garden upside down. <laughs> Six months later, his parents buy him a Fiat 500. Okay. Right? It's a good as, starter. Yeah, as a second car. His dad, Wallace says, we thought with its top speed of about 50 and no acceleration, <laughs> we thought, well, he can't do much harm in this, right? Yeah. So this is like... Good plan. They lifted his driving suspension and let him... after and let yes. him Because he'd rolled the earlier van and let him drive it. And they warned him, be very careful. He says, all right, and he heads out. That very night, the first night, <laughs> there's a knock on the bedroom door at 2 o'clock in the morning. James stood there looking really <laughs> sheepish and asked if they could come down and talk to him. The dad goes down and finds a large assembly of his friends all looking solemn and serious, right? <laughs> what had happened is after the pub had closed, James's mate had gone to a house party and drunk more. Yeah. Then they roared off into the night in all their speeding cars. James was forging ahead in the Fiat and then he had a friend <laughs> st standing up on the passenger seat, look, putting his head through the sunroof to scream abuse at their pursuers, right? The chase ended when James encountered a car that was stopped in the middle of the road. It was another friend who was looking for the party. So he's, he's had to avoid it and he runs it into a lamppost. Okay, yeah. So all these drunk teenagers, they're all about, you know, 17, 18. Yeah. They come up with this other version for James's dad of what right. happened, right? Sort of saying, oh, this we were good. just driving along very gently. 
Yes. And this car was parked in the middle of the road and I had to avoid it and all this. James had said to one of his mates, can you do the talking? I can't do the talking. Right? <laughs> so the dad comes down and he's in his dressing gown. It's two in the morning. People are in the crowd all standing there, all these friends who are going to all vouch for this story. They're all burping and falling asleep because they're so <laughs> drunk. So it was just apparent they were all smashed. Uh, James refuses to talk and the guy that was meant to talk and argue his case kept hiccuping <laughs> so couldn't speak because he drank so much. So that was it. Wow. First night. They purposely don't repair the Fiat. They leave it there for Very him cool. to look at. I love the fact that he was out in front leading in the Fiat 500. Yeah. He then finishes school at Wellington and he said, I could speak the Queen's English and I knew how to hold a knife and fork properly. That was all. That was it. So he wasn't really into it. No. At this point, his aim, though, is to go to medical school and become a doctor. So this is sort of Good what everyone's Lord. thinking, right? Yeah. Which his parents are encouraging. Driving an ambulance. Not sure, yeah. <laughs> That's what he wanted to do. On his 18th birthday, uh, he had a tennis doubles partner, a guy called Chris Ridge, and he suggests, why don't we go to Silverstone's which is a famous racing sure. circuit, and go watch an event because my brother is racing in a club race. It was in a mini. So people used to do up a mini and race them, you know. It was a huge yep. thing. And James didn't even know this was a thing. He just got there and couldn't believe it. He just, it's the first time he's been to a racetrack. First race time track. been to a racetrack. But also the fact his friend's brother is racing. He says, as far as I knew, motor racing was something impossibly remote, something carried out by a lot of continentals with long names. <laughs> He said, I couldn't identify with them at all, but here was something within reach of a mere mortal. It was the immediate answer to this problem of having my needs satisfied to compete. So he just sees that and falls in love. He decides there and then, I want to be world champion in motor racing. Let the games begin. Now, he's never raced a car and he's crashed the only cars he's ever been in, but he decides it. This is in 1965. So he goes home and he announces to his parents, all your anxieties about my fecklessness are over. I am going to be a racing driver and I shall be world champion. <laughs> His parents are like, what are you talking about, right? Yeah. He actually says to them, I've got a business proposition. I need money fast <laughs> and I'll offer you a deal, Dad. It's going to cost you five grand to send me to medical school, but I won't go and instead I'll just settle for 2500 in cash to buy the racing car right now. His dad says, get stuff. <laughs> That's not a deal. <laughs> Let's shake on it, Dad. <laughs> His dad says, no, he needs money. His dad's not going to give it to him. He decides I'm not going to medical school. I'm going to be a, he tells everyone, I'm going to be a racing car driver. Everyone's just like, you are absolutely bonkers, right? So he needs money, takes every job he can get. So he is a tea boy for 14 pounds a week, bringing back sandwiches and acting as a messenger and delivery boy for a local printing firm. Yep. He doesn't last long there because his cornering techniques tend to tear the wheels off the minivan that they've lent him. (laughs) And so they just decide it's good if you've perhaps left. Yeah. He goes into ice cream sales. Sure. Literally driving a van around selling ice cream to kids. Like a Mr. Whippy van. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see him race one of those. <laughs> exactly. He was too soft-hearted and he would give the products away for free to the children. So they said, you can't do it. <laughs> he worked at Sainsbury's, which was the supermarket. He left over a wage dispute there. He ends yep. up working in a garage, work on other cars, which just made him think about how he wasn't doing very well with his own one. Yeah. Um, he said, I hated every minute of all this. But with this, he managed to get enough money to get a stripped down uh, chassis of a crashed mini racer. Okay. And he starts sticking bits on it. It takes him two years to get it race ready. 
He's right. committed. He's committed, know? right? This is all he's doing. Sounds like a fancy idea, but he's actually targeting yeah. it and pursuing it. So in 1967, he, with Ping as his pit crew, his girlfriend, yeah. he sets off for the first ever race with this mini he's built. And he gets to the track and he's all excited. The race scrutineers look at his car and they find fault with nearly all of it. <laughs> so first he's on bald tires, which he's got oh, yeah. a knife to cut tracks into. <laughs> so the tread is cut in with his dub with a knife like a billy car yeah he tries to convince them that's a new secret weapon they say no nah, you're, yeah, you're on board sides so. you know that. the other problem he has is instead of a proper seat he had a deck chair <laughs> <laughs> that he just put into the thing not a bean bag no, no he's got a deck chair he's got a deck chair oh, I can't so believe they got onto it they say oh, that's no good yeah his other problem is he had an exhaust system that just ended at the engine manifold, so all the exhaust just went into the car. Like it just, so it's like. So you know, he had to keep the windows down as he well, was well, around the track. The other problem they had is he said that's not a problem because I don't have any windows. He hasn't put windows. Oh, They wow. say you need, you need windows and he says, well, there's no mention of them in the rule book and they say you need windows, mate, and they say <laughs> you can't race. So basically, he doesn't know how to race cars yeah. and he doesn't know how to build them. Well, so he, he wants to compete in the Arkansas Buzzwag. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In the wacky races. He's completely, how deluded. Yeah. Did he think he was going to sneak it by or did he, his eyes No, he, he, he thought he it was fine. We're good to go. Yeah, we're good to go. He said he burst into tears. He said, two years of devotion and working and for nothing. And he said, I'm 50 pounds in debt. I've got no money. He said, my whole world collapsed around me. I was a broken man. Yeah. So he goes and gets a job as a trading manager for a telephone company. He manages to enter three events, right, which he does okay in but not great, racing his mini, just in, in the, local in the, amateur races. Right. Yeah, this is later so on. So he's so allowed he to race that car. He finally, is out. he finally gets the money to fix it up. He goes traveling around and he's totally loose on these racing trips. His tennis partner, Simon Ridge, said, they were camping one night over at this race meet. It was nighttime. He said, suddenly there was this strange figure rushing in and out of the beam of the headlights, flapping its wings and hooting madly. It was James with his tent over his head pretending to be a ghost. He tripped over the wire of someone else's tent and fell on the occupant and said, frightfully sorry, old man. I'm afraid your rope has attacked me and I've fallen over. <laughs> so this, is what, this is what he was like, right, all yeah. the time, just high energy and running him up. Eventually he decides, I'll just get rid of the Mini, right? He just sends, okay. sells it for cents on the dollar. Because a new form of racing's come along in 968 called Formula Ford. And what it is, is it's these little single-seater cars with open wheels, skinny tires, 1,500cc engines, uh, invented by Ford, and it's devised to be an inexpensive introduction to proper racing. And he yeah. decides, I'm going to get rid of the Mini and go for this. And the way he does it, because it's quite a lot of money, you need about a thousand pounds a year. What he does is He'd he does get a big trade in on the mini. On the mini, yeah, yeah, the mini with no windows. And, so he does a high purchase scheme, which is just you pay a down payment of three hundred forty-five pounds and then thirty pounds a month. It's really on the never never. He's sort yeah. of buying it all up, so he's in massively in debt right away. But yeah. he decides that's what I'll do. I'm going to race this. So it's a terrible financial decision, but yeah. he's but he's, he's racing. racing a half decent car all of a sudden. In his first race, he lost 15 horsepower from an incorrect engine ignition setting, 
but still manages to finish fifth. So suddenly people are going, well, he's actually he can drive. okay. So he starts doing Formula Ford regularly. It, many of his early a- races end in huge accidents. Yes. Right? In one accident, he passed over the head of another driver during a crash. He hit a bump on the edge of a track. He goes airborne. Yeah. Goes over this other guy's car into a shell advertising hoarding, breaking off a massive great piece of wood that was holding it up. The other driver, a friend of his, looked at it and thought, that looks very nasty indeed. And this is the other driver said, when he came down, he chopped the nose off my car, went sideways on the road and I hit him right in the middle. We came to rest against the bank alongside each other. Our wrecks neatly parked. We climbed out. He pulled out a pack of cigarettes, offered me one, and we sat there smoking and watching the race. The accident wasn't mentioned. Yeah. There's gasoline everywhere, but they're still having a cigarette. Yeah, they're just having a cigarette. Like That's fantastic. And they don't mention that what's just happened. No. On one occasion um, at Alton Park, he lost control, and this time he was catapulted into a lake. He said, luckily, I was flung clear as the car went over. I remember being on my hands and knees under the water and then suddenly emerging like Neptune. <laughs> Seatbelts were not yet compulsory, and I didn't have them because I couldn't afford them. Had I been wearing one, I might have drowned. There you go. Seatbelts are not compulsory to 972 in Formula One. Yeah. So this is uh, how. There was no regard to safety initially. No, not at all. At all. The car was ruined and been, had been bought with his loan, obviously. So he had to spend the next two years paying off a car that he couldn't drive. <laughs> um, he said the accident didn't worry him too much because I was young and stupid. Now, he managed to rent another car. And he's still racing. Formula Ford. Formula Ford's been launched in Italy by Ford Motor Company because it's become very popular, you know, yeah. cheap way in. Just around the time Ford were trying to take out Ferrari. Yeah, they're there. all getting into it. So he goes over to Italy as one of the drivers for this Formula Ford event to launch it. He gets there and it turns out that all the drivers are required to have a medical certificate that states their blood group. And he claims this wasn't mentioned properly in the pre-event regulations and he doesn't have it, right? So right. he's like going nuts at them. They say, we're not going to let you start. Bad luck. He'd gone all the way to Rome to do this. Yes. So he's furious. So he drove his car out of the paddock and parked it at 90 degrees across the front of the grid and left it there so they couldn't start the race. <laughs> Up in the grandstand was Stuart Turner of Ford Motor Company, one of the big wigs, yes. right, and a bunch of the dignitaries. He's watching this going, <laughs> what the hell? And he turns to the dignitaries, this yeah. is the head of Ford yeah. in Europe, goes, Mark my words, that young man is going nowhere in motor racing. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Now, the thing is one of the other teams, a team called Motor Racing Enterprises, they saw him do this and they actually thought this is the sort of forceful competitive spirit we need in our team. So they saw it as a good thing, right, like that he was so angry and desperate. So they decide to let him drive one of their cars. And at the very first one they do, he wins the next race for them. And so they're very impressed. They say, we think if you stick with us, we can promote you into Formula 3, which is in the lead up to Formula 1. Here we go. Next year for the 1969 season. Fantastic. So at this time it's becoming known that he's driven these amateur races but not a lot of experience. But we're getting a sense of his racing style and that is it's just pure intense willpower yeah. More than pure skill at gotcha. this point. He just wants to win so much more than anyone. The way he would do it is he would work himself into such a state of high anxiety as the race approached that he was almost impossible to deal with, right? right? So for one, he was famous right through his entire career for throwing up before every single race 
and he would do it openly and in public, just in the paddock. Fantastic. He didn't care if anyone knew. Now, Ping and some of his other friends thought this happened after the lake incident. Yeah. He was just terrified because it was right. so dangerous at the time. But he says it wasn't this. He said, I was just sick with the tremendous pressure because basically I was often driving cars he owned and if I crash them, there's no way I can replace it. So he was yeah. like, this could be my dream over today. So he said, I wasn't worried about the death at this point when I was young. I was worried about the financial yeah. implications. So he would focus so much on the race and so competitive. People said it was absolutely weird. At one point he crashed his car and it's a total wreck on the side of the road. And another driver who was involved in the crash approaches the car and he all he could hear, he says, James was sitting there in the driver's seat with his finger on the start button screaming to himself, effing thing won't start, effing thing won't start. And they said he was so pumped up he didn't know what day it was and the adrenaline just had to go somewhere. He said, it took me quite some time to calm him down and persuade him to look over his shoulder. That's when he saw why his car wouldn't start. The engine was on the other side of the track. (laughs) We've got the problem. His team managers over the years, they would take advantage of his need to be in a state of rage to race. It isn't incredible. He has got himself into some... It's like a road rage, but he would just channel it and he'd have to get into it, right? Like, And he was just a nightmare. One of his team managers said... I would take advantage of his very low tolerance for indolence by having the mechanics deliberately work slowly on his car. So he'd be going, is the car ready? And they'd be like going, nah, when they could have finished it in half an hour, they'd stretch it out just to make him angry. They saw that as an advantage. Yeah, the more angry he was, the better he raced, right? So, so, they would, so now they're just winding yeah. him up. Yep. He's taking advantage of a guy who's already pissy. Yeah. And they That's say, fantastic. They thought if he was capable of going faster on the track, they would alter the lap times on the pit signaling board to say he was going slower than he actually was. And this would <laughs> like make him think he was doing terribly, so he'd go even faster. Wow. So they didn't. Another guy, Alistair Caldwell, who was the head of McLaren Racing for a long time, Yes. when he worked with James, he said that he used to try and supercharge his emotion. So he would often get one of the other team members to get him in an argument while he was sitting in the car on the grid before the race, <laughs> he'd say, I used to ha- get him to have an argument about money because that was James's favourite subject. He said that he'd make him have a huge row about like hotel accommodation or first class airline tickets or something. <laughs> and that would take his mind off worrying. Like, this is like bullying. Alison Corval said he'd never seen a driver as nervous as James. He said, before a race, a lot of my drivers pretended to be sleeping. Either they would be overcome by adrenaline or in an attempt to control it, they would go into a passive mode and try and lower their metabolism by dozing, right? That's what he said most drivers did. But James couldn't keep still. He would pace around the garage chain-smoking cigarettes, put his helmet on, then take it off again, and he nearly always threw up in the pits. It would get worse when we brought the car out onto the grid. Just before the start, he would get so uptight that the car was actually shaking on the grid. If you sat on the side pod with him in the cockpit, his legs would be going up and down like jackhammers and you would think the engine was running. Wow. So there was this weird like kind of just anger and nervousness yeah. that he had to sort of Like a harness. ticking time bomb sitting in. And you got to remember this was very like dangerous at the time. One journalist said, and he was like this for the days leading up to the yes. race too, a guy called Ian Phillips who was an amateur journalist at the time but ended up becoming quite a big journalist. He approached James when James was just in Formula 3. And he just unloaded the Formula 3 car in the paddock. And he thought, well, this is a good time for me to come and ask him a quick question. <laughs> he said, I quickly got the impression that my timing was inopportune when he gave a very public school board reply to my first query. 
what kind of stupid effing question do you think that is? <laughs> so that's what he was like, like. Yeah. Part of this is for James is it's partly a nervousness about racing and even though he says it's not about death, he's one of the few drivers that talks quite openly about death and is obviously yes. worried about it because he's driving in a very dangerous time. One of his lines was, my first priority is to finish above rather than beneath the ground. <laughs> he said there's yes. a lie that all drivers tell themselves. Death is something that happens to other people and that's how you find the courage to get in the car in the first place. The closer you are to death, the more alive you feel, but more powerful than fear itself is the will to win. So you get this sense with him all the time that he's really trying to ignore death and he almost doesn't like driving. Yeah, he almost doesn't like it. Right, He's not a natural driver who's obsessed with driving. It's almost like he's just decided to become world champion in this thing and it's through sheer willpower And he's not the calm ace before the race, just like yeah. taking it all in. Or the ice man, the ice the low man, pulse rate. Yeah, he is the opposite. He's like anyone who's about to do something truly he, petrifying, and he's truly aware of how ridiculous and dangerous yeah, exactly what he's doing is. Now, to give you an idea, now Formula One is pretty safe, right? The deaths in the sixties and seventies were huge, yes. so. For Formula 1 drivers, people who'd race Formula 1, sometimes they would race Formula 2, Formula 3 yeah. as well. It was far less sure. structured. But in the 60s of these guys that were up at that level, 29 deaths occurred in the 60s. It's unbelievable. 18 in the 70s. So I, saw, I remember seeing one race, and I can't remember the particular year, but a car turned over and caught fire in the middle of the track and they kept racing around it. Yeah. So it was literally a fireball in the middle of the track and they just went around and the race continued. Yeah. So you look at it today and it's astonishing. From the that, safety of the car to the way the tracks were built to the amount of – like they used to not well, there was fire no runoff, engines was it? Some they used of to have no trees and, and, and things on, off the side of well, tracks. Well, some of the it? tracks, they were so long that it wasn't even easy to get. So if a driver had crashed, and this was before cameras everywhere and everything, it might take five minutes for anyone to know the crash had occurred back at the headquarters, yeah. right? So it was a totally different – well, yeah. right? There were trees all along the side. They used to go off into barns and into lakes like we've heard. Like it was totally, <laughs> you like know. Like a cannonball run. Yeah, it was. It was more like that. <laughs> um, Nicky Lauda, who, you know, famous and becomes yes. a good friend and rival of James, he said at the time drivers were literally fighting for their lives. People racing had to be from a completely different world to cope and stay alive. Yes. Um, today they can hit each other or blow four tyres and not worry. If we made the smallest mistake, overtaking one of us would be dead so this yeah. is what, he, what what he's getting into right yeah. he's making his way into formula three it's 1969 dangerous time but he's this is the first time he starts to be seen by others as potentially a serious driver yeah. he's got an outdated car to, it's two years old so he's not in the best one but despite this he's immediately on the pace even in formula three yep so he finished seventh in his first ever formula three debut um, and then he gets fourth or fifth in the next few. Sure. But in Formula 3, he has even bigger accidents because the cars are going <laughs> even faster. He gets a nickname known as Hunt the Shunt, shunt being <laughs> crash in yeah, written gotcha. language. And it also rhymes, so it works out really well. So everyone starts calling him this because he's in so many accidents. It's since been proved that he was in no more accidents than anyone else. Right. But because it rhymes so well, it <laughs> sticks, right? At the time, he's literally living in a tent. He eats at the cheapest restaurants and he only really chats to the other drivers because he can't go out anyway. He's got no money whatsoever. 
He does break up with Ping at this time. Okay. Because he's travelling around. She's had enough. She's had enough. She doesn't want to live in a tent. Now, the reason she leaves him is he's cheating on her immensely the whole way through. So, and she's got a different rhyme for shun. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I would have thought that point. (laughs) This is, let's just say, this is a theme of he's not a faithful guy. This is the start of his other career. Yeah. His most celebrated argument in this season was he was at the Crystal Palace circuit and. He was feeling pretty good. He'd won two Formula 3 victories by this stage. He was starting to look good. And this was being televised into all the homes around London. So it was a big race for him. It was the first time most people would have seen him um, in an actual race. And he finished second in the qualifying and he's going really well. But then he gets in on the final three laps fighting for second place and he gets in an accident with two other guys. And one of them is a guy called David Morgan. So they crash debris goes everywhere yeah and before the car's even really finished spinning yes. hunt is out of the car walks up to morgan and punches him on national television <laughs> and we're away so this is in Fantastic. front of everyone right this is like <laughs> not viewed well by the racing fraternity right? oh okay they're not uh, thrilled with not this. a good look for the sport yeah one of the, his friend racers, Brendan uh, McInerney, he says that this is the second physical trauma, this crash that James has suffered that weekend. The previous evening, he and James had gone out for dinner mm. and they had adjoining hotel rooms. Right. This is Brendan says he's dozing off and he heard an almighty scream from next door. It turns out James has had an attack of crabs. What? Crabs. As you in, mean as in venereal disease. <laughs> right. okay right he said james had an attack of crabs and was treating himself the bottle of the lotion had leaked and rather than diluting it as he was meant to he mopped it up with a towel and dabbed himself liberally with with that but it was much stronger than he anticipated when he applied it to the effective parts ah this is outrageous (laughs) ping's got out just in time (laughs) exactly what is he doing he's a loose unit what can i say um, around this time, he's breaking. Should break- have a pit crew for that. Yeah, I know. To treat his crabs. Around this time, his carousing had really begun to intensify, right? Because he you suddenly. <laughs> it's just a night before a race, just casually treating his outbreak of crabs. I know. Imagine if that was while he's racing. Is he racing? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jesus. I'm sure in the no. 70s that happened many that would times. Have been, that would have been a count it wasn't a couple re- of accidents, It wasn't brake failure. <laughs> Reason for crash brakes, not really, <laughs> no. Crabs were playing up. Did you say cramping up or crabbing up? Yes, that's right. <laughs> he finally had a little bit of money coming through, so he's making up for lost time. Yeah. There's suddenly a money. Two, it's the glamour of racing at the time. So women are real. he's a good-looking guy, yeah. loves women and they love him, so he's taking adv- full advantage of that. Here we go. Now, he says one of the reasons he really started to party a lot is he had become very fatalistic that there might be no tomorrow, He's that he die. could crash any day. There's sort of almost, and I'm not saying it's the same level of danger by a long shot, but there's almost amongst racing drivers, it's almost like if you read accounts of the Battle of Britain and oh, the totally. Spitfire pilots, they had this view as I might not be here tomorrow. So Correct. It was a dangerous time to be driving. Yeah. In this time, he, he said there was one bit where they had an incredibly wild race in Sweden where almost everyone died. Luckily, no one did. And afterwards, he and Nicky Lauda were chatting about it. Now, Nicky and him at this time, they go on to both be massive F1 stars. Yeah. But at the time, they were struggling for me three drivers. 
and very different guys. Nicky Loud is this calm, Charlie, rational, yeah. like yeah. great driver. Um, and James is this sort of playboy yeah, all yeah. out there. Crab-addled nutcase. Yeah, exactly. But they they get along really, really well. They are great mates. Yeah. James once said they sat up talking all night after this race in Sweden about the dangers of F1. He said racing drivers, this is James, racing drivers never talk about among themselves about death. But that night in Sweden, I did discuss it with Nicky. We came to the practical rather than some philosophical conclusion we both realised that because of the game we had chosen, there was really no point in leaving the celebrations till later. It was quite a simple rationalisation. The chances were pretty high that we'd both get killed, so we decided then and there that we'd celebrate as we went along. We're here for a good time, not a long time. Exactly. So there was sort of this. Yeah. Um, eventually, Nicky and James move in and share a flat together in London when Nicky Louder comes over that and James actually teaches Nicky English, takes him around and they become great mates for the rest of their lives which becomes mm. important later. In 1972, while all this is going on, he thinks he's doing okay but he's got this, you know, he's punched someone. He's got crabs. <laughs> he's crashing a lot and he's, he's known as Hunt the Shunt. He's a loose cannon. He's loose. So the team he's racing for. On and for, off the track. Yeah, very much. The team he's racing for is a Formula 3 team. They say, Sorry, you're fired. Even though he's doing well. Even though he's doing well, they're yeah. just like, it's too much drama. You're punching people. You're crashing all the time. Yeah, okay. And you're all over the shop. It's just not worth it. And they say, bad luck. So it's the middle of 1972 and James's career is basically appears to be done and dusted. done and dusted because he's fired and he doesn't have a race anymore. And it's at this point we might leave it here leave and it come here, back. Because we're going to come home like a train. He's about to meet the man that's going to change his life forever. Okay, it's a cliffhanger. I cannot wait. Uh, let this week fly by. Thank you, Titus. If you want to get in touch with us, you can contact us at sportsbazaar.com. You can leave a message for us there. You can also get in touch with us through our social media and follow us and keep you up to date. And if you're following us on Apple Podcasts, Please go on and rate us. It lets people know about us and more people find us. Tell your friends. We want to share this nonsense with as many people as possible. And once again, thanks for listening.